Amen. Would you turn with me this morning to 1 Peter, the book of 1 Peter? I've finally gotten out of the habit of saying John. Let's form a new habit. We're going to work our way over the next few months through this letter that Peter has written, and we'll begin reading this morning with chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Now when we come to a, a new book of the Bible, and even in your own personal study, one of the most important things that you can do is establish right off the bat the people and the circumstances that are involved in the writing of that book or that letter. This includes knowing the author, his audience, and the occasion for which, for which it was written. Now, not every book is clear on, it, on the surface who wrote it. And we studied the Gospel of John, and we're confident that John wrote that book, but John's name is nowhere in that book. We go to the accounts of the other Gospels, and we look at how he refers to almost every other disciple but himself, and the things that he wrote in his letters later in the New Testament, and we come to the conclusion that John wrote that book. You go to the book of Hebrews, nobody's got a clue. It's been a debate, it's been discussion, sometimes heated for years, who wrote the book of Hebrews? And the fact of the matter, we come down to it, we really just don't know. Thankfully, we come to this letter. We go to chapter 1 and verse 1, and it says, Peter, praise God, we know, we got it. Now there are people who will debate that Peter actually wrote the letter, uh, some would say that Silvanus, who's mentioned towards the end of the letter, wrote it. Someone later on after Peter's death and just used his name. Uh, but there's plenty of evidence to the contrary. No one really argued that until the 1800s in the, the throes of higher criticism uh, when really we started questioning everything in the Bible. But if we take the Bible at its word, if we take God at His word, Scripture is clear that this letter was written by Peter. You really can't deny it from the internal evidence of the Scripture. If you want to have the debate or the discussion about the external evidence, I keep office hours. Call me later. We'll do that. But for our purposes today, we're just going to take God at His Word and say that Peter wrote this letter. Amen? Who was Peter? The man with the foot-shaped mouth. We know uh, that Peter was the man with roller coaster faith, had its ups, had its downs. We know enough about the life of Jesus and the Gospels that we remember when Peter was called. He was a fisherman out on the boat doing his job, doing it well, except for this one particular night when they caught absolutely nothing. 
A man comes up, says, cast your net on the other side of the boat. He says, listen, we're the pros. We're the fishermen. You look like, I don't know, maybe a carpenter. What do you know about fishing? Nevertheless, he says, at your word, I will do it. They cast the net on the other side of the boat. They took in so many fish that they couldn't take in all the fish. The nets broke. The ships, the boats began to sink. And Peter fell on his knees and said, what? Depart from me. I am a sinful man, O Lord. And that was the beginning of Peter's walk with Jesus. Uh, other things from Peter's life we remember. What's one of the most famous things he did? He walked on water. They're in the storm. They're crossing. Jesus has said they're going to make it to the other side, but he didn't go with them. The storm comes. They're afraid. They're convinced that they're going to perish. And they see someone walking to them on the water. And they all say, it's a ghost. Good superstitious fisherman, right? It's a ghost. He says, do not be afraid. It is I. And Peter said, Lord, if it really is you, let me come to you on the water. Now that's faith. That's when his faith was way up here. He had so much faith. He was so confident in Jesus being there with him that he was going to step out of the boat and walk to him. Jesus said, come. Peter steps out. He walks a little ways. And what does the roller coaster do? Takes the dive. He begins to look around. He sees the storm around him, the wind, the rain, the, everything happening all around him. He takes his eyes off Jesus and he sinks. And Jesus takes him by the hand. And even after what he had just done, Jesus says, Oh, you of little faith. Why did you doubt? Later on, I see them all camped around a fire. They're having their evening discussion. And Jesus says, who do men say that I am? Oh, you're John the Baptist, one of the prophets. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter, faith up here again, says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, you're right, Peter. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. My father revealed that to you. You're going to be called Peter. You're a, a rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. What a commendation. And then about five minutes later, <laughs> Jesus tells them that he must suffer and die. And Peter says, no, you'll never do that. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. We see the roller coaster. Faith is high. Faith is low. When he was in the upper room with Jesus, Jesus came around washing their feet. And Peter said, you'll never wash my feet, Lord. Jesus says, if you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part with me. He says, whoa, don't just wash my feet then. I need a bath, head to toe. Wash me clean. Jesus said that they would all deny him. And turn away and leave him alone. They would all abandon him. And Peter is the one who steps up and says, I will never do that. I will never deny you, Jesus. And Jesus says, Peter, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me. Not just once, but three times. And when he did, 
Peter went out and wept bitterly. And then we have that wonderful scene of reconciliation on the beach when they had fish for breakfast, fish and toast. And Jesus gave Peter three opportunities. The same number of times he had denied him, Jesus gave him three opportunities to express his love for him. One of the things that I want to point out about Peter's life from that upper room was when Jesus said to Peter, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you. Satan asked for Peter that he may sift you as wheat. But what does Jesus say? He says, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Jesus knew that Peter was going to deny him. Jesus knew that Peter was going to be put under pressure. His faith would be tested and that he would fail. But he prayed for him so that once he was restored, he could strengthen the other Christians. And when we come to this letter, this first epistle of Peter, that's exactly what we find Peter doing. The Christians that he's writing to are under pressure. Their faith is being put to the test. And Peter, knowing exactly what it's like to be put to the test, to be under that kind of pressure, to be tempted to deny the Lord, he can relate to what they're going through. He writes to them in such a pastoral way to strengthen them, to encourage them, just as Jesus said he would. Here's what encourages me about Peter. He loves Jesus. He was bold. He wanted to do what was right. He had a lot of flaws. He said dumb things. His faith had highs and lows, and he flat out failed Jesus. But he experienced the grace, the mercy, the kindness of Jesus. He was loved by Jesus despite his faults, and God used him to save sinners and to strengthen the church. Peter's a man that I can identify with. I've got flaws. I say dumb things. And I've flat out failed God. But for all my faults, for all the dumb things I say, and all my lack of faith, God is gracious and can still use us. When I was 17 or 18 years old, I can't remember, I went to this uh, church meeting and they actually let me preach. There were a lot of older guys there. I don't know why they did, but they did. And uh, I, the next day I went back to that meeting after I'd preached the previous day. And this older gentleman, he, was, he had been a pastor for a long time, walked up to me, shook my hand and said, I just want to let you know that you did a good job yesterday. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I just want to let you know the Lord used you despite you. <laughs> Thank you for the encouragement, sir. I, I, I appreciate that. And I'm still encouraged to know that despite all my faults and failures, like Peter, the Lord can still use people like me. And the Lord can still use you. Amen?
we're running out of time. We've got to move on, folks. Who are the recipients of this letter? We know who wrote it. Peter wrote it. The recipients, verse 1 again, he says, To the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Anybody know where all those places are? Okay. Just so you know, all those places, those provinces are what we now know as Turkey. Modern day Turkey. So these are churches not just in one town or one area, but spread across this entire region that are going through these same difficulties. He calls them the pilgrims of the dispersion. The dispersion or the diaspora would have, that word would have struck the Jewish Christians because uh, the word was used to describe Jews who had been separated from their homeland. If you know anything at all about Jewish history, they spent a lot of time separated from their homeland. They were in captivity, seemingly, constantly. They would come out of one, they would be delivered, and then more enemies would come upon them. Peter refers later in the letter, he makes reference to Babylon. You remember Daniel? Having to live in that land, apart from his own people, apart from Jerusalem, apart from their place of worship. Israel had experienced that. They were, they knew the people of God. God had made them all these promises, but they were constantly scattered, dispersed throughout the world. But there's significance to this saying that Peter gives beyond the Jews because it's not just the state of the Jews. This is the state of the church. This is the state of all Christians. We're scattered. This is not our home. We're not in our homeland. We're spread out in a place in which we're strangers. He calls them pilgrims, sojourners, exiles, temporary residents. You know, we may live here. We all have places that we're going to go to when we leave here today that we call home. But do you remember the song? Maybe you heard it. I remember hearing it growing up, the church I went to. The choir would sing, This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. You all ever hear that one? That's just the state we live in. We are part of, if you will, the dispersion. We're scattered. We're not at home. We are exiles, pilgrims. This world is not our real home. Now, this location in Turkey, at the time that the letter was written, there wasn't any government persecution of Christians yet. And that's why some people dispute that Peter wrote this, because they say, well, why is he writing to people who are persecuted if there wasn't any government persecution going on? Well, it's true that at this time, the, the persecution by the emperor was contained to Rome. The, the Christians who lived in Rome were feeling the, the, the most heat, the most pressure from the government. But that doesn't mean that the world that these Christians lived in wasn't one that was opposed to Christianity. They weren't being persecuted by Rome, but the, the world that they were living in was increasingly anti-Christian. Because this church was growing, people were becoming Christians, and it was contrary to the way they lived their lives. Their persecution didn't come from the government, it came from employers, or if they had a business, they would have experienced boycotts. Their persecution would have come from families and friends who shamed them and would have nothing to do with them. 
in the world of I can do what I want and you have no right to tell me I can't, Christians who live like Christians are out of place. Does that sound familiar? That's not just the world of the first century that Peter knew. Now, we're in the United States of America, the land of liberty. We don't have the government breathing down our necks ready to put a sword to us. We're not being put to death for our faith. But the court of public opinion is totally set against biblical Christianity. The world is progressively becoming more and more anti-Christian, anti-Bible. We worship the one true God who demands that He alone be worshipped, while the world worships false gods, or no God, or multiple gods, or the God of self. We live by God's standard that He's given us in His Word, but the world lives by the standard of, if I want to do it, you really have no right to tell me I can't. Your truth is your truth, and my truth is my truth, and you can't impose your truth on me. We live by God's standard. The rest of the world lives according to its own lusts and desires. Now you can be discouraged in that. You can bemoan better days if there ever were any. Or you can compromise and say, you know what, I know the Bible says this, but the culture's going this way and we just got to keep up with the times. And both of those responses are wrong. You can't spend your life just lamenting the condition of the world and not doing anything. And you can't compromise the truth of Scripture. We have to be faithful to what God has commanded, regardless of the circumstances around us. But it's difficult. The world that they lived in was difficult. The world that we live in is difficult and becoming more difficult. So what encouragement... Can Peter give these Christians? What can he say to motivate them to continue following God, being obedient to His Word, serving Him faithfully? What encouragement can we have as we live in similar circumstances? What can I say to you? What can Peter say to you? What can God say to you? That will motivate you to ignore what's going on in the world around you and just serve God. Just live faithfully. We're not going to get beyond verse 2 today, so let me just share with you the word of comfort that Peter gives. This is the first encouragement that he gives these Christians and to us. And it's this, verse 2. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you, and peace be multiplied. That's more than just a greeting. It is so packed with truth that should encourage the Christian. His number one encouragement for Christians is simply to remind them who they are in God. 
The greatest encouragement you can have in your Christian life is simply to be reminded who you are in God. Now he uses the word elect or chosen. And that word isn't given to stir up controversy. It's not given to cause disputes or to make people uncomfortable. You just say the word elect in a Baptist church and people get squirmy. Okay? It's a Bible word. Get over it. The word was used to describe Israel in the Old Testament. They were God's elect. They were nobodies. Abraham is a a wanderer. And God comes to this man and chooses him. Not because of anything he had done or anything he could offer God. But he comes to Abraham and says, I choose you to make you a great nation. Israel thrived under the knowledge that they were God's chosen people. Even when they were in captivity, the thing that kept them going, the thing that encouraged them was knowing that God had chosen them. They were His elect. They were nobodies. They were a little nation. Yet God called them and made them His people. Without God and the work that He did, Israel would have never been. And if it had been, it would have never amounted to anything, and the people certainly wouldn't be around today. This was by God's choosing. So in the Old Testament, we know that word elect to refer to Israel. They were the elect of God, the chosen people of God. But what did God do in the gospel? Remember Romans 1.16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first. Yes, God chose the Jews, but also to the Greek, to the Gentile. In the gospel, God does not just choose one nation out of the world and put His favor on them and everyone else is excluded. But in the gospel, God has expanded His choosing and has elected for Himself a church of people from all the nations and all peoples. God has chosen another people in His Church. Paul rejoiced in this in Ephesians 1. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according According to the good pleasure of His will, here's why, to the praise of the glory of His grace by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. God chose you as His people. When all the world was against them, and as the world is progressively turning against us as Christians, how encouraging it is to know that God has 
chosen you. God has decided by his own will to love you who are unlovable. Now we see the, the work of God in this, and he uses each member of the Trinity. He mentions the Father, the Spirit, and the Son, Jesus Christ. Let's look at each of these. He says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Just want to point this out. God's choosing you was not according to your merit. God's choosing you was not according to your self-worth. What you could offer Him. What you could do to advance His kingdom. That's how we would choose, right? Now, I don't know about you guys, but when you pick teams for softball in school, you know, some of y'all were good enough that you got picked like first or second and people got upset if they didn't get you. I was not that person. <laughs> um, at the other end of the spectrum, there are people who, uh, they get upset if they get stuck with you, right? I won't tell you where I fell in that spectrum. But God chose us not for anything that we could offer, not for anything that we could do. God chose you. If you're a Christian, listen. God chose you simply because He desired to set His affection on you. Just because He wanted to love you. He said it was according to foreknowledge. And I'd just simply like to point out that foreknowledge isn't simply just knowing what's going to happen. It's not a knowledge of passing information. Some people have the idea that, well, yes, God, God chose, but he, he looked down through the corridor of time. You've heard this. And he saw who would be saved. And so knowing who would be saved, then he chose to save them. That makes good sense, right? Well, he uses the same word uh, in verse 20 to talk about Jesus himself. He says, he, Jesus, was indeed foreordained, it's the same Greek word, before the foundation of the world. Now, did God look ahead in time and see that Jesus was going to die on the cross anyway, so then he chose to send Jesus to die on the cross? No. Revelation says Jesus is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. God chose to do that ahead of time. It was his plan all along. So foreknowledge is his purposing to do something ahead of time. If you're a Christian, it isn't because you are anything or have done anything to impress God. You're a Christian because God in his kindness simply chose to save you. And you should rejoice in that. When the world hates you and turns against you, even if your life falls apart completely, you can have confidence. You can be encouraged knowing that God has chosen you and you are his. Amen. The next phrase he uses here is in sanctification of the spirit. And I'll move quicklier, quicklier. <laughs> That's a word, right? <laughs> Sanctification, set apart, made holy. 
Now, often when we think of the word sanctification, we think of that progressive maturing as a Christian, as we go on through the Christian life, that we're being made more and more into the image of Christ. And that's true. That is a work that God does in us. But I think in this case, the sanctification of the Spirit isn't that progressive, ongoing sanctification, but it's the sanctification that happened at the moment you were saved. You you are being set apart from the world now. In Christ. But when you were saved, you were at that moment set apart, sanctified, made holy. You were set apart from world, from the world, your association with it, your uh, citizenship in it. You were set apart from sin. You were set apart from unbelief. And you were set apart unto the righteousness of Christ. You were set apart unto the family of God. A separation happened on the day you were born again. Sin goes by the wayside. Of course you still sin. You're not perfect, but you have been separated from it. It no longer contaminates your soul. And you have been made part of God's family. And this is a work of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me just say this before we move on. Yes, sometimes it is discouraging that we are set apart from the world. It's discouraging to see Christians who are under attack... It's discouraging to see it when families disassociate because someone has become a Christian. But let me encourage you that when you are discouraged for being set apart, remember that it's God's plan to set you apart. (laughs) That is God's work in you. When you are set apart from maybe someone you love or maybe set apart some way regarding your business, whatever, that, whatever happens, know this. If you are being set apart from the world, that is actually a good thing. That is God's work in you, making you more like Jesus. And that's the work that the Holy Spirit does in us. We are sanctified by the Holy Spirit. He says, for obedience... And sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, when does this happen? Because we see each person of the Trinity, right? The Father planned this before creation. When you're saved, the Spirit does the work of setting you apart. He sanctifies you. But when does it happen? And on what basis does it happen? It happens... When we obey the gospel and are sprinkled with the blood of Christ. Now that sprinkling of the blood would have, again, resonated with the Jews because back in Exodus, you look at chapters 19 through 24, I think, once they had been delivered from Egypt, they're in the wilderness, God has given his law, and Israel says, whatever the Lord has commanded, we will do. They commit themselves to be separated for the purpose of God. And then Moses does what? He takes animals, he makes a sacrifice, he puts half the blood on on the altar, and then he comes to the people and he sprinkles the blood on the people. And that was signifying that they had been set apart as the people of God. They were under the covenant that God had made with them, that they were his people. And then they committed to obey him. 
So now Peter brings that language into the New Testament. Yes, we know that God planned salvation from before the foundation of the world. Yes, we know that it's the work of the Holy Spirit in us when it happens. But it happens on the basis of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is accomplished. It can be brought to pass because Jesus Christ died for you. Because He shed His blood for you. And you must obey His gospel. God's sovereignty, God's choosing does not negate your responsibility. There was the missionary going to India. One of the first. He was raising support. And the pastors that he had met with said, no, you sit down, don't go to India. If they're elect, they will be saved. They don't need you. That was the attitude. But no, God has chosen to carry out the task of saving people through the preaching of the gospel. And people must respond to that gospel. Jesus' command at the beginning of His ministry was repent and believe the gospel. Jesus died for you. His blood was shed for you. You deserve to die. But all the punishment, all the wrath, all the judgment that God had stored up for you in heaven, He poured it out on His Son on the cross. Jesus died in your place. He shed His blood so you would not have to die. And you must obey His gospel. You must repent. You must turn away from your sin. Turn away from yourself, your own efforts, your own righteousness. And put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. The one who died for you. The one who shed His blood for you. God planned it. The Spirit accomplishes it because Jesus died for it. And you must obey that gospel. One commentator said it this way, The Father thought it, the Spirit wrought it, and the Son bought it. God chose to save you. The Holy Spirit did that miraculous work, but it happened when you obeyed the gospel and were metaphorically sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, when you come to that and you realize that, surely the next line makes sense. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Whatever comes against you in this world... You can stand firm because you are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God in the sanctification of the Spirit and obedience by the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. God has poured out His grace. Grace, unmerited favor has been poured out on you. And He says, peace be multiplied. May it increase. And friends, as we think on our position in God as Christians, when we think of where we stand with Him, grace and peace will be multiplied.
we can live confidently and be encouraged to stand and be faithful. May our study of the book of 1 Peter put steel in our spines to stand firm in a world that is against God and against his word. And we can because we've been chosen. Would you stand as we pray? Father, we thank you for the kindness that you have bestowed on us. We cannot fathom the spiritual blessings you have given us. We are wealthy in the heavenly realm because we have been chosen and purchased by you, our God. Knowing what you have done for us and knowing who we are in you, may we stand firm. May grace and peace be multiplied. In Jesus' name, amen.